Our scripture today is John 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Carrie Ann. Um, the, the Ignite Youth Conference, too, just to give you, a, if you're like, oh, I didn't see what's his face in that group or something, uh, the idea with that was that that was to equip leaders of the well. So the, the concept was uh, mainly high school leaders to bring some high school leaders with us to be equipped with the idea that now they're leading other high schoolers and middle schoolers in their school. So we had Wes Marshall, Baxter, Colo Nesco, and Collins Maxwell all represented in that group uh, with the hope that they're being equipped to, to, uh, to reach others. So it was really exciting. To, so it didn't reflect everyone who's a part of the well, but the people that were praying uh, the Lord would form, and others too that maybe for whatever reason weren't able to be a part of it this weekend. Um, one other thing, we were we knew we had brought a box in, and it was it took a while to find it, but I think Tanner is going to be at the door as we leave. We have 500 of these that just have information about Good Friday, then information about Easter on the other side, and man, if you want to grab a handful of them and give them to, at the office or go in your neighborhood or... Um, just to have if conversation comes up and it's clear to people that that maybe they don't have a home church to be a part of on Good Friday or Easter Sunday, this would be a really good thing. We're going to orient it to even have more space than we're having right now as well. And so I'm, I'm excited for that, uh, excited to... Uh, it does feel a little bit, little bit to me like there's been some opposition towards us just being in the room right now, which I think is exciting because sometimes it's like, okay... Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens with uh, a lot of things that feel like, just for various reasons, have been curveballs kind of thrown our way this morning. And I think part of the reason is because our focus today is quite possibly the most famous Bible verse of all time. Not just in Iowa, but worldwide, most famous Bible verse of all time. Um, some of you may be encountering this verse and those verses around it for the first time today. Others, you might have meditated on this verse 10,000 times. You might have heard 100 sermons on this verse. Um, in 1997, Jesus changed my life. He turned the lights on for me, turned the lights of my soul on. Uh, my, church, my world changed from being centered on me to being centered on him. I try to jerk it back as often as I can, and thankfully... He reminds me of life as found centered on him. Um, and then just the way, it wasn't because I was special or anything, but when I felt like Jesus turned the lights on for me, I, I just desired for everyone that I grew up with to meet Jesus in the way that I had met him. And um, I didn't know much at all about Jesus when I came to Jesus. 
Like, I, I didn't know very much about him, and I knew even less about the Bible. So, like, after college, I was going to get my master's degree in studying Greek and Hebrew and theology and the Bible. I was going to get my master's degree in that, and as I got, I got accepted shockingly somehow. <laughs> they didn't ask me like what I actually knew. They just, uh, I don't know, I got accepted and I'm driving to Dallas. I'm on I-35. I have the table of contents open on my lap trying to memorize the order of the books of the Bible because I knew I'd probably be the only guy who like, you know, were translating it into Hebrew. And I'm like, that book's in the Bible? <laughs> like, like that was where I was coming from. And um, in the next, in the few years in the late 90s, churches in the area gave me an opportunity to preach. And I was super grateful for the opportunities. Looking back, I once again, like didn't know why they would trust me with preaching the Word of God. But I remember meeting with uh, Pastor Scott, who faithfully and gratefully is pastor of Collins Christian Church still, but over 20 years ago, meeting with Pastor Scott, um, and then him being like, yeah, we'd love to have you preach, and preached on John 3.16, I remember, at the Collins Christian Church in the late 90s, I then was able to, we had grown up at the Collins Methodist Church, and thankfully I was able to preach there in the 90s, and, uh, and I preached on John 3.16. And one of the reasons I preached on John 3.16 is because it was one of the only verses I knew. <laughs> so I was like, and it also felt safe to me. Like, I felt like if I started going into other books of the Bible, I don't really know very much about those books of the Bible. Um, I, the Ashton Chapel in the 90s um, had a dear uh, place in my heart for several reasons. And one was I had been told that my great-grandmother, Grace Kimberly, had actually uh, made the pulpit there. So there might be some people here that could confirm or deny that, but that's what I've, I've heard that she was, she was active in that church um, in many years ago, and so, and even at Ashton Chapel, I preached on John 3.16, <laughs> that was, that was my go-to verse on preaching, and um, be, it's, it's super clear, it is a super clear section of scripture, it cuts to the chase, it is powerful, it is a powerful passage, um, it felt comfortable to me to preach John 3.16. The more I learn about Jesus, the more I learn about his word, the more that he teaches me about myself, the more I learn about us. Um, I feel a little unsettled preaching John 3.16 today. I don't feel quite as confident as I did 20 years ago. There's, there's a part of me that feels a little bit more unsettled um, and cautious, I might say. Um, of going to such a famous portion of Scripture. Um, one is because of how familiar it is. And so one of my encouragement to all of us is to fight the familiar. It, it's, it is so good to be familiar with the Word of God. It's so good to meditate on the Word of God. It's so good to have His Word hidden in us. Um, Psalms even talk about about having his word hidden in our hearts that we might not sin against him. It, it is so good to know it, and we need to fight the familiar because we might feel like we know it so well that we don't need to listen to it. We don't need to hear it in a fresh way. We don't need to discover riches in it that maybe we hadn't seen before, or maybe we see them we see them again, but, but we are in a different place, and we are in new situations, and we need to see it 
with new, fresh eyes. I, I hope that the Lord would keep us from ever thinking, oh, that's a part of Scripture that changed my life once, a long time ago. The same portion of Scripture can transform our lives hundreds of times. As we grow, as we change, we will grow and be changed by these same verses in new ways, is my hope. So, so to fight the familiar, then another, before we jump into here, is to make sure we keep Scripture in context. When you have such a mountainous, glorious verse like John 3.16, it's like, how many people have John 3.17 memorized? It, it can be so easy because it's, it, it, it looms so large and it's such a powerful verse that maybe 18, 19, 20, and 21 um, are not seen in the context it should be seen. So, so we, we don't jettison 316 and we grow in understanding its context. And as we grow in understanding the context, I think we'll grow even in our appreciation of what Jesus is revealing to us and sharing with us for our good and for his glory. So, so I, I hope that, that more and more people can mouth John 3.16 as it's being read out loud and can follow along and grow in the context of it um, as that affects us in our context and empowers us in our context. So can I pray for us before we, we dive into this? Uh, Lord, I do ask that you would take each of us into deeper waters through the treasures of these verses today. Uh, if this is our first time or our thousandth time hearing this, would we have open hearts and an open mind this morning? Our desire is you transforming us today. Lord, our desire is you transforming us today. And if that is not our desire, would you place that desire in us this morning? Would it be good to you to add power to your words this morning for our eternal good, the good of our community, and ultimately for your glory? Lord, we dare and confidently pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, so verse 17 of John chapter 3. Remember, this is Jesus' interaction with one of the most religious, professional guys around, Pharisee Nicodemus. If you could get to heaven by just being a great person who is just killing it, Nicodemus can walk right in. And so Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus is very telling uh, because of the things that he brings up. And here in verse 16, and if you had missed the beginning of that conversation, it's an important conversation. So I do, uh, we would invite you to go to our website or podcast and, and catch that and catch up there or on our Facebook page. Uh, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's out of love that God gave his only son. And I'm going to try and speak really clearly and plainly, not because I don't respect the intelligence of everybody in the room. I'm speaking, I'm going to try and speak as clearly and plainly because I think 
that what Satan would love to do is to confuse things and to cloud things and to make everything feel really cloudy. And sometimes just shooting as clear as possible is actually what we need to hear and to see what it's saying and what it's not saying and not add anything else to it is, is the power that's actually going to change us. So, so what we're hearing here is that it is love that God gave his only son. If Jesus is standing in front of us, we should realize we are loved by God. Plain and simple. If Jesus is standing in front of us, we could say, oh my gosh, Jesus is standing in front of me. And like, there could be a lot of really cool thoughts we'd have. One of the thoughts we should have is, the Father loves me. That's why he's standing in front of me. The Father gave what he loved most. I have one son, Silas, and I don't think I could love him any more than I do. And you with kids, like, get what I'm talking about. I don't think I could love him any more than I do. And the father can't love the son any more than he does. And it is his love for the world that leads him to give what he loves the most. It's his love for the world that leads him to give what he loves the most. Why would he do that? And I, th- I think like that should leave us in continual, we should be quick to shake our heads for the rest of our lives. We should also realize the worth of our souls because the reason for such a sacrifice is so whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is the reason that he gave what he loves most out of love. And a rejection of Jesus results in perishing and eternal death. It's just the flip of that statement. A rejection of Jesus results in perishing and eternal death. Belief in Jesus equals salvation and eternal life. Verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 17, I think, is fundamentally like staggering. If you view God as one who condemns you, you view him wrong. If you look in the mirror and when you think about your life and you think about God and you're like, man, I bet you he condemns me, you're, you're, you're not viewing yourself correctly. Thankfully, we're, we're informed through Scripture of the way he views us. He will indeed one day judge the world. Every ounce of that legitimate rage that every human can feel at injustice Every ounce of that legitimate rage that you can feel towards injustice pales in comparison to how God feels about it. And justice belongs to him. And he is just. And justice will be carried out. Condemnation does not. And this brings us to a major point about God is that God is unlike all the other gods. And I, we have, uh, I think that's a point on there too. God is, uh, and that purposely there's a lowercase g there. So other gods, not meaning that there are other gods, but meaning that other gods, lowercase g, that people would seek to worship, capital G, real God, creator God, is unlike any other God. 
Here are a couple examples. Those who follow Islam. Those who follow Islam, they emphasize that God is the creator of all things, that God is an all-powerful being. He's all-knowing, but he is completely unaffected by humans. Completely unaffected by humans. And uh, Muslims don't know how God feels about them. They follow very, a lot of principles out of hope that it will gain a sense of favor with God, but they never know how God feels about them, and they don't know what God thinks about them, what he feels about them or thinks about them. And this is not who God is revealing himself to be. In Buddhism, on the other hand, people do good and bad in Buddhism. And if you do really good, and this is a very simplified form of Buddhism, but if you do really good in this life, when you die, you'll come back as a better person. And if you do really good in that life, when you die, you'll come back as a better person. If you do bad in this life and you die, you'll come back as a worse person. And if you keep doing bad in this life, you end up coming back in animal forms, where then you'd have to work yourself back up to being human again, and then work yourself up to be better and better and better. And so when you finally reach nirvana, could take thousands of life cycles, would be a way that they would talk about it. And if you do ever achieve nirvana, you actually cease to exist as a person. So you don't consciously even know that you are now in nirvana because you, you uh, one way that they refer to it as a drop of salt into the ocean just dissolves. And that is nirvana through a view. And the, like Steve Jobs, that he, he died as, as a Buddhist embracing those concepts. And what we see here is that God is unlike all the other gods. And you might not think about this naturally with John 3.16, but to lead by saying, God loves us. He loves us. He sacrifices greatly for us. He is not here to condemn us, which almost every other view of religion, I mean, we support a church plant in Mumbai, India, and there are people who worship demons. Like they truly have, you can go to a, a place where there's an altar and they're, they're, they're worshiping very evil demonic beings. And it's like, why would you worship those evil demonic beings, you know? But there's, there's a view there that, that what we are seeing here is like, no, God, I'm not here to condemn people. I'm here to save. And it's not going to take thousands of lifetimes to gain my favor, it won't even take one entire lifetime of being a good person. It won't take an, even one lifetime of being a good person to please him. The revolutionary words of verses 16 and 17 is it takes one moment to inherit eternal life. Realize how freeing that is? How like worldwide shattering message that is, is that God loves us, is on the move to not condemn the world, but to save the world. And in one moment, you can eat, inherit eternal life from our God who is good. His offer on the table is serious. Rejection has real consequences. 
And Jesus gives us so much more of God's heart, God's mission, God's posture to us in verse 18. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now remember the example from last week that Jesus shared with Nicodemus. If you were an Israelite during the time of Moses and you got a snake bite, so they're in the middle of the desert. If you were a snake in the middle of the desert, you probably don't have a lot of access to food. And then two million people come walking into the desert, you know? Like if you're a snake, you're like, it's time to feast, you know? Which I know is really disturbing to think about. But um, in the middle of the desert, that became a real problem. And God made a way for them to be healed. God made a way, and this was the example that Jesus shared with Nicodemus so he would understand what he's revealing to us in this passage. A way was made. God didn't make a way because he was angry at them. He wanted, or that he wanted them to suffer. No, like God made a way, a remedy, because he loved them and he wanted them to be healed. The remedy was so easily accessible. It was completely free. There wasn't a toll booth. or anything. It was completely free. You can't say God condemned anyone with even the snake bite because he provided this easy way to be healed. And the way was form a bronze snake, form a snake out of bronze, twist it around a pole. So artists today will put it on a cross. And then you just raise it up in the air so that everybody can see. And if someone got a snake bite, all that you have to do, now you have to have the knowledge, so you have to share it. You have someone's like, I have no idea what that is. There needs to be a little bit of knowledge. Hey, here's what you need to know. When you need to be healed, look at this, and you will be healed. So it takes a little bit of knowledge. It also takes humility to be like, oh gosh, I got a snake bite. Oh man, I feel like I shouldn't have done that. I was whatever. Like, who, you know, like there's all sorts of things that people could do to feel like maybe they got to try on their own to fix it. But it takes humility, it takes trust, it takes an awareness, I've been bitten. It takes you stopping and just looking. Looking. Now, I think from the Lord's perspective, he could say, okay, I'm, I'm doing a lot of power behind the scenes. Like, you know, there isn't anything magic in this. What people are doing when they look is they're trusting God's way to be healed. And they're looking to him as they look to this bronze serpent on a pole. Okay? And what we saw during the time of Moses is, is if they did that, they were healed. It takes that trust to look. It takes humility. And guess what? It takes humility. It takes trust to stop and look to Jesus and look to him to heal us. If someone died during the time of Moses because they refused to look, if someone died because they refused to look, their death came as a just consequence. No one was like, man, I can't believe God allowed that person to die. It was like, well, they refused to look. 
They refused to look. The person condemned themselves by not believing God's mission of healing to them. They refused his love towards them to their peril. It hinged on faith. It all hinged on faith. Their life, their death hinged on faith of will you look to the solution for you to be healed. This takes us to the second insight into God, his mission, his posture towards us, is that faith alone is staggering. Faith alone is staggering. Like, this has been, if you're like, well, hey, Jesus, like, invented this in the first century. It's like, no, like, Jesus is sharing. From the time of Moses, I've been sharing. Like, faith alone, if you look, you will be healed. And this is the example I'm sharing with Nicodemus here. Faith alone, faith alone saves. It has staggering consequences that pivot on faith or a refusal of faith. Chuck Swindoll is a, is a pastor in Dallas, Texas now, and he speaks about this in really powerful ways. I think we have the quote here. What could be, yeah, what could be less complicated than belief? What could be more effortless than faith? There's nothing to achieve. There's no quest to complete. There's no challenge to overcome, no method to master. There's no merit to earn. We have only to trust the one who made us, who loves us, and who satisfied all of God's expectations on behalf of all humanity. Most, however, will opt for religion over regeneration. Pride is not only powerful, it's blinding. We can be blind to the staggering power of looking to him. Would we see all the blinding enemies of genuine faith? It's, so it's, it's really crazy, but the, the bronze snake, it reappears 700 years after Moses. So after the story of Moses, you would have thought, oh, that was like a one and done thing. But it actually, 700 years later, appears in Scripture it shows up in 2 Kings 18, long after this affliction of snakes is over, when a righteous king, Hezekiah, would lead his people away from religion, away from doing things to try to appease God. He would say, hey, this is not what this is about. We're, I'm trying to lead you away from religion to have a genuine faith in God. Look what he does to the bronze snake in 2 Kings 18, 4 through 5. Hezekiah removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. They started worshiping it as their God. It was called Nehashtan. He trusted, this is Hezekiah, he trusted in the Lord the God of Israel. So people start worshiping the bronze snake 700 years later. They're like, that's our God right there. We don't need to follow God. That's our God right there. Let's worship him. Let's worship that thing. And over hundreds of years, they stop looking to God and they just worship the bronze snake. 
he became their God, or it became its God. And what I love is that Hezekiah realizes Hezekiah has a real, genuine relationship with God. He trusted, that, he trusted in the Lord. He didn't trust in the snake. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. So what I love is Hezekiah didn't care that Moses crafted that thing. 700 years after Moses, Moses is the most like, famous guy from all history, you know, Moses and David, and he doesn't care that Moses made this. He doesn't care that there's a 700-year tradition connected to the history of this bronze sculpture. What he cares about is people having a genuine faith in the living God, and so he melts that sucker down, destroys that thing. He's like, anything that's going to keep us from actually having faith in God, I don't care what the tradition is, it's out the window. We're gonna destroy that thing and remove it from happening. And God was like, thank you, about time, thank you for doing that, because that served its purpose, and then people started worshiping it instead of worshiping him. And I I love that uh, we are left with God's final word on all of this for those who look to him are given instantaneous eternal life and those who refuse, look at verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. If we resist the light, it's that we, we fear being exposed. See that? Hates the light, does not come to light, lest his works should be exposed. If we resist Jesus, we resist the light, we fear being exposed. We've become comfortable in the darkness, Uh, My mom has a great saying where she's like, I didn't know I was lost until I was found. (laughs) I didn't know I was in the darkness until the lights came on and I was in the light. This shows just a beautiful, when we step in the light, we're stepping into God exposing us, exposing everything in our life. And man, you could feel like, well, that's going to lead to rejection. That's going to lead to shame. That's going to lead to, whenever I was honest with people growing up, they would walk away from me. So many things. And here's what's beautiful, and this is our third point, and I I feel I got this from a book that I'm reading uh, on counseling that's from the people who wrote all these booklets over here, uh, wrote this great book that's called uh, Saints, Sufferers, and Sinners. And in there, uh, they had this great point, and I was like, oh, I think this is what Jesus is saying here, and it's that God reveals what he wants to heal. God reveals what he wants to heal. He never like has this like huge 10,000 lumen you know, light. He never has this huge light to shine at someone or just to be like, oh man, that's really bad. That really stinks to be you. Oh gosh, I'm gonna go this way. That's really gross. He, do- he only shines into places where he is shining there to heal there. God only reveals what he wants to heal, to light up our life, light up our relationship with him. He's revealing it to heal it. 
when he lights up places in our marriage with his light, inviting us to step into his light, he reveals and maybe believes what we don't believe at the time is like, I'm revealing this to heal it. Pain from our past is brought into his light. He reveals it to heal it. And our knee-jerk reaction is to hide in the dark, to be like, I don't want you to see that, and I don't want to even think about that anymore. It's better left untouched. And he's like, let's heal. Let's heal here. Stepping into the light is stepping into truth. How do we bring this home to each of us? And I think, what, what, what do these verses mean for me today, mean for you today? And I think the Lord could show us like hundreds of ways that, that these truths will transform us, hundreds of ways. But together, I think, like, let's focus on two. And I, I think the first is, if you don't give your life to Jesus, you are resisting him. I think that is what we're seeing here. And it's just clarity at times. Now, it's not meant to strong arm anybody. I think sometimes there's just, I remember in Oklahoma City once, I was talking to this guy who was in his 20s. And he had grown up in the church. And as him and I talked, it became very, very clear that he had not looked to Jesus. And I just told him, I said, hey, look, man, I'm not trying to be the bearer of bad news here, but clarity can be your friend. You do not know the man. You have not put your trust in Jesus based on what you've just told me. And it was about a week later that he gave his life to Jesus <laughs> because he had the clarity that he hadn't up to that point. And, um, and man, and you might be like, well, I need to hear a lot more about that. Let's talk a lot more about this. Like, these are the important things to talk about. For sure, if you don't give your life to Jesus, you are resisting him in the same way that the people in the Old Testament during the time of Moses would get a snake bite and refuse to look at the bronze serpent and say, I got to find some other way to be healed. And don't be mad at God if he's like, yeah, I got the way right here. Well, another way. Show me another way. It's like, no, <laughs> like, I gave my best. I gave my only son. I don't have another one to give to you. I gave you my best. I'm, I have one way. And if you resist that way, you're doing it to your peril. If you don't put your trust in Jesus today, I would just encourage you, would you at least take the pursuit seriously? And man, would we get together and talk? And if you would like to put your trust in Jesus today, uh, our community groups too, man, we had, we've had people be in our group for, I mean, our church isn't very old, but uh, um, we've had a person that was in a group for over a year just hearing truths of Jesus and then placing his faith in Jesus. And you are so welcome. I'm not drawing a line here and being like, get in or get out. <laughs> you know, uh, this is very much like a be here and be here as long as you need to be here. Be here for 30 years, but would you purposely be here pursuing Jesus, looking to him and seeing about giving your life to him. And one way that you could pray if you do desire to give your life to Jesus is um, this is just a prayer. This prayer doesn't magically save. What does save you is looking to Jesus, but this prayer could reflect what you are doing. And it says, God, I know that my sin has put a barrier between you and me. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to suffer the penalty of my sin by dying in my place so that that barrier could be removed. I trust Jesus alone for the forgiveness of my sins. 
In doing that, I also accept his free gift of eternal life, which is mine forever by your grace. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praying that, and if you want to get the podcast and, and go back and listen to that a few times and be like, yes, okay, that is what I'm doing, uh, please do and please share that with us too as we can celebrate. And then a second is if you have given your life to Jesus, thank him that you have eternal life. Like how, I, I forget to do that sometimes, just be like, oh my gosh, thank you, thank you that I have eternal life. Me? I don't deserve, thank you, thank you. Um, Patty and I were praying uh, the other day and just uh, as uh, she had had chronic pain at different times and, and we, were, we were just praying and praying one day and the next day the Lord allowed her pain to be a lot better and it was like afternoon before I was like, oh, I prayed a lot yesterday and then by his grace he allowed this day to be way better and I didn't even think to say thank you. <laughs> like, thank you, Jesus that of the love that you are showing us and how you are present and you are the light that steps into the darkness. Not a light, but you say in this passage, you are the light. And then for us to realize that he is transforming each of us, which means he is shining his light in each of our lives, in different areas, and Jesus is not this get-out-of-hell-free card, I'll see you in heaven, I'll live how I want for the next 30 years, but instead, he is daily transforming each of us to work the darkness out of our lives, to place his life more into our life, and that can be very painful, and it is very necessary, and God does not reveal what he does not intend to heal. So bringing it home to all of us is like, we need to be a community where we are locking arms because Jesus is shining into places in our life that's going to be painful and difficult, but it's to heal. And we want that, and we don't want that. <laughs> and so in the parts that we want that, it's, that's why we have community group. That's why we gather every week. That's why we pray for each other. That's why we have prayer group meetings and things like that is because we are supporting each other as the light of the world is transforming us and changing us from the inside out because the Father loves us, because Jesus stands in the light. He reaches his hand out to each, each of us to step more into the light. Um, and uh, Lord, I just, I ask that we would not put up walls as you do this, but what I ask, Lord, is that you would absolutely transform us. Lord, that those that you are inviting to put our trust in you for the first time would do that today. But Lord, for all of us, as you are pursuing us, as you are changing us, Lord, would we would we be connected with each other and connected with you in a way, Lord, that you are healing us as you are revealing more and more to us. For your glory, Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the, the response should never be, so go and try harder. The response should always be, let's go to him. Let's step closer to him. Let's, let's step closer to each other and closer to him as he is changing us. And one of the ways that he gave us to do this is through communion. It's a tangible 
designed by Jesus' way for us to commune with him, and very appropriate, and for, for generations and for hundreds of years, uh, Christians have, at the end of gatherings, come to the table together. We come to the table as family. We come to the table to commune with him. He says, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. He said, I will do this with you in person one day at the wedding feast of the Lamb, one of the first times that we're all with him. Again, and until we're with him, let's do this, and, and his presence is with us. And so uh, there's wine and juice, obey your conscience. Uh, it's a cup within a cup, so you just grab a cup, and then there's bread in the bottom, uh, then you'll separate it. And then what we'll do is come and take it, and then we'll st stay standing and take it as family. Um, if you have yet to put your trust in Jesus, I would encourage you, don't come to the table. There is not a lot of meaning here if you are not a follower of Jesus. What I would encourage you to do is just spend that time maybe even praying to him and just saying, God, if this is real, would you show it to me? If you are this loving, if you are doing these things for me, not just for someone next to me, but actually for me, would you show me those things? For those of us who are followers of Jesus, um, we are told in scripture, don't come quickly to the table. Um, don't come flippantly. Don't be like, oh, I'm going to grab three and just chug them real quick. Like, instead, what we should do is recognize, like, this is an amazing opportunity for us to each meet with the, our living Savior, for him to maybe do some work in our hearts and in our minds, uh, then, but come boldly and confidently because of what he's done for us and his love for us. So, so let's spend some time uh, before him, and uh, then let's come to the table, and uh, then we'll take it together as family.